it is another joyous opportunity that we've each been given this evening to assemble together in the name of the God of heaven with the express purpose and desire in our heart to glorify and magnify His name and His cause. And as always, we're so thankful for the membership of the congregation that all is well with us, that we're able to come. And in addition, for those visitors who've come our way, we want you to know that we're excited you're here. If you have any questions, please realize, please take a bulletin. Our elders will be happy to address any particular concerns or questions or thoughts that you might have. As always, we do look forward to every opportunity that we have to assemble. And tonight in particular, during this portion of our worship, we'll continue our series of studies on the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. It has been our interesting challenge, I hope, to give some thought to that book now for a number of Sunday evenings here in a row. In particular, as we began that series, we have discussed a whole host of ideas, not the least of which is the very character and call of Ezekiel, the matters concerning the judgment he proclaimed by way of the Word of God on the nation because of their sin. And we have seen that truth of God expressed in a number of very vivid and dramatic ways. Everything from a haircut to a tile construction to the considerations of a boiling pot. All of them have been reminiscent of and remindful of the character of the judgment that God was to bring on Judah because of her sins. In particular, last Sunday evening, <clears throat> as we looked at chapters 25 to 32, we gave some thought to the judgment God also pronounced on the surrounding nations like Ammon, Edom, the Philistines, Egypt, and some others. It is the case tonight. We come to chapters 33, 34, and 35 in the book of Ezekiel. Please be turning there with me as we highlight some of the interesting aspects of those three chapters of the Word of God. It would certainly be in order to keep in mind the fact that among the chapters in Ezekiel, chapter 33 is perhaps most famously known for the so-called watchman consideration found within it. And I would invite us to devote the next few moments to a highlighted consideration of the matters of the watchman as found in Ezekiel chapter 33. The watchman. Maybe it's fair to say, even at the outset, that again a picture, as we have done in the past, might well be in order. On the top left, you'll notice a picture in which you see a person who is there standing upon a wall and looking with gaze and very careful eye into the distance to see whether or not there might be any problem, any trouble, any enemy approaching the city. We're well aware of the importance and the needfulness of a watchman in the ancient era. You can perhaps imagine it well. Most of the cities in that era had a, a wall about them. Obviously what that would mean is if you always remained inside the wall, you would have little knowledge, at least careful knowledge, of what transpired outside it. And thus they would employ watchmen who, with careful gazed eyes around the clock would keep a very careful view toward the distance to see if an enemy was approaching or a problem was developing. Needless to say that once a problem was perhaps perceived, once an enemy was seen in the distance, he would bring word immediately to the authorities inside. The king had to be protected. The other army had to be, of course, gathered appropriately so that defense could be made. It goes without saying that the watchman was an extraordinarily important individual. No wonder then as we come to chapter 33 in Ezekiel, God uses the idea of a watchman 
to in fact teach Israel about some more matters as well. This chapter pairs very well with chapter 3. In fact, you'll notice the multiplicity of threes, Ezekiel chapter 3 and Ezekiel chapter 33, all of which make careful observation and mention about the needfulness of the watchman. Back in chapter 3, God specifically told Ezekiel, You are to be the one who proclaims majestically and powerfully to my people the fact that there's problems on the horizon. Isn't it true? God told Ezekiel, you warn them. You tell them that they have in fact strayed from me so that they can make proper repentance and so that they can come to me as I would have them do. Now when we reach chapter 33, what is this new message, this revised message, you might say, that God has for both Ezekiel and for the people? Let's make a selection of a few of the verses, verses 1 to 7 of the chapter, begin by calling to our attention the powerful work of the watchman. Verse number 2 reads, Son of man, speak to the children of, Israel, to children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet, and warn the people then, whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet, and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. We can thus see again the work of the watchman. God says, if my people put in place a watchman, we know how it works. If that watchman sees the enemy coming, he blows the trumpet, and the people have opportunity to protect themselves and to flee. God says, if someone chooses to ignore the warning, if someone chooses to ignore the blowing of the trumpet, then if the sword comes and the man's life is lost or some other difficulty comes, it's his own fault. He's the one that ignored the warning. I wonder what the lesson in that may be. It's almost clear, isn't it? God sent Ezekiel to his people to serve in the role of a watchman, and Ezekiel has preached to them now for some 32 chapters about the nature of God's judgment, the power of the fact that Babylon is coming and there will be a destruction of Jerusalem. If anybody in the city chose to ignore the warning, if they chose to in fact neglect what was declared, whose fault was it? It wasn't Ezekiel's. If he was a dutiful watchman, he proclaimed well what was set forth. The verse though that followed reads like this, verse 5. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. You'll notice then that those who heard the words of the warning, the trumpet, and they did in fact take heed, they could be delivered. What about Ezekiel's responsibility, verse 6? But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet... And the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. You can imagine a watchman, like in the, on the picture to the right. I don't know if you could make out the detail, but there is a man actually on that wall, but he's asleep. The enemy may be approaching in the distance, but the watchman is not very dutiful. The watchman, you'll notice, is dozing, sleeping, overlooking the chore and charge given to him. And you'll notice that in the verse we just read, God in fact specifies, doesn't he, that in such a situation as that, 
Though a person's life may be taken, I'll require his blood at the watchman's hand because the watchman didn't do his, did not do his job. In the verses that follow, let's apply all of that now the way God does. Beginning in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse number 7, if we revisit that previous slide... you find now that God powerfully applies that very message. He reminds Ezekiel first and foremost, beginning in verse number 8, Ezekiel, you again are my watchman. You are given the interesting challenge of proclaiming to my people the fact that doom is coming. The enemy is approaching. You must be, in fact, very busy about that task. And now, if anyone chooses to ignore your warning, their blood will be on their own head. If, on the other hand, a person chooses to heed your warning, they can be delivered, they can be saved. You'll notice that's highlighted in some amazing observations. Note, for example, verse number 11. Ezekiel 33, verse number 11, please. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There have been those through the centuries that have painted a portrait as if God is a mean tyrant who almost finds it joyful when someone dies lost, someone who passes from this life unprepared for judgment. God reminds Ezekiel, even though this judgment is coming, and even though it shall be a ferocious and terrible thing due to their sins, I take no pleasure in the death of those that are wicked. I take no happiness or joy in that fact. We've noted more than once, haven't we? that the New Testament is so powerful in its presentation. God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, to read 1 Timothy 2.4. And we notice in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is the desire of heaven, isn't it? In the sending of the great Son to die on the cross, that His blood could save all, if only all would come to Him. That is, of course, the sad refrain of Romans 10, 16, isn't it? But they have not all obeyed the truth. The Lord came and died for all, but all have not received Him. Can we not see in a verse like this? God does ask then the haunting question. You'll notice it's stated later in that same chapter. Why will ye die? God warned them through Ezekiel. They had the proper means to recognize when the enemy was coming so that they could flee. And God says, why then will you die? Why do you ignore what I've said? Doesn't that sound thunderously like what could well be stated today to a world in mass that so often has rejected the Lord? Why will you die? I can only imagine on the day of judgment that thought will be reverberated time and again. Why will you die? I didn't have to, but now I must, because I failed to obey. It may be in light of that, the closing thought on the slide. They made amazingly some accusations against God. You'll find these in verses 17 to 20. They accused God of being unfair. Believe it or not, they had the audacity to accuse God of being unfair. The Lord's ways are not equal, they said. He has His favorites. May you and I take just a moment and observe. The basis for their accusation was not reasonable. 
It was not sound. They were trying to make that assertion based on the fact that God treated some nations apparently differently than others. That would be a matter that challenged the prophet Habakkuk sometime into the future after the, the writings of Ezekiel. Finally, Habakkuk realized, though, the great sovereignty of God and that problem vanished. Here, God says, verse 17, Yet the children of the people say, The way of the Lord is not equal. But as for them, their way is not equal. God said, rather than the problem resting with heaven and with me, it's actually with them. They are the ones whose ways are not equal. They speak with forked mouth, right? They claimed allegiance to God, but they wanted their idols and they wanted all their sinful activity as well, and it cannot exist both ways. Either we are for the Lord or we are not. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 12, verses 28 and following, either you scatter seed abroad or you're with me. There is no middle ground, is there? You'll notice that principle, as we've seen even here in the days of Ezekiel, leads to the last parts of this same chapter. Beginning in verse number 21, we have God again through Ezekiel making some of these observations. And it's a very telling set of questions. I'd like you to know the way in which God phrased some of these ideas. Verse number 24. Son of man, they that inhabit those wastes of the land of Israel speak, saying, Abraham was one, and he inherited the land, but we are many, and the land is given us for inheritance. Wherefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Ye eat with the blood, and lift up your eyes toward the idols, and shed blood, and shall ye possess the land? You and I, perhaps as parents and as others, can appreciate the way that God stated that question. If we may phrase it like so, Here you are, my people, supposedly, and yet you worship your idols, you shed blood innocently, you take matters into your hands and do that which I've condemned, and yet you think you're going to receive the land? You must be kidding. I added the last part, but you see the rhetorical nature of the question. God says, you're not getting the land because you, in fact, have disobeyed me. Their habitation of the land of Canaan was always contingent, wasn't it, upon their obedience to His laws. Deuteronomy 28 as well as Numbers 26 both make that abundantly clear. You'll notice now they're in disobedience and they will forfeit their land. That forfeiture leads us to the next observation. God reiterates to them, this land will be left desolate. You will be removed from it. You, in fact, will be taken away, and in the desolation that follows, you'll find yourself scattered to the winds of the heaven. In the scattered character of all of those things, may I say, the chapter rather rapidly then closes. It does so in verses 30 and following by observing some of these ideas. Ideas that we may summarize with these lessons. The people, in fact, talked about Ezekiel. You can almost hear them behind their back when he wasn't anywhere around making fun of him. This man that's cut his hair, this man that has acted in all these strange ways, he lied on one side for 390 consecutive days. What's wrong with him? Maybe he isn't right in the head. You can imagine the, this, the disdain they had for him. And all of that, he had the nerve to straightforwardly tell them they were guilty of sin and that God was going to punish them for it. 
I'm sure Ezekiel was not very popular. And these verses seem to highlight that very fact. Notice some of the things they were saying about Ezekiel. Verse 30, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. You'll notice again, they were talking behind him. They were saying things as if they were making somewhat laughter at what he had to say. Maybe in light of that, no wonder we should recognize the fact that even the Lord himself was not well received in many ways like that. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, 19, Marvel not if the world hate you, a fact that John reiterated in 1 John 3, verses 13 and following. You and I know that we won't always be the most popular if we stand for the truth. That truth maybe can be highlighted with three concluding thoughts to this chapter, all that we should be very brief about. First, the concept of the watchman. Am I my brother's keeper? The famous question asked by Cain centuries and centuries ago. We each realize God has given us an element of obligation relative to the watchfulness of our souls and those whom we love, interestingly those, of course, whom we have opportunity to assist, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. To quote Mark 16, verses 15 and following. The concept of that watchman takes us back to even the words of Paul. What was it he said as he closed 1 Corinthians 9, 16? Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Why, Paul? For I'm debtor to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. I'm able to preach it. Romans 1, verses 14 to 16. And didn't he say in that 16th verse of that chapter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The characteristic of the watchman then reminds us of that lovely obligation that rests with us. Maybe the second lesson comes right with it. That lesson that's a constant reminder to each of us as Christians. Doesn't it remind us of it in ways that you and I have so often learned? It is the case that God in that 33rd chapter on two different occasions said, If anyone that's righteous... Proceed to turn from me and do that which is then wicked. His righteousness will not be remembered. He will die in his sin. If that doesn't teach as clearly as anything in the Old Testament, that once saved is not always saved, and it's never been that way. And it isn't that way today either. For you and I know the New Testament is filled with passages that remind us time and again that you can fall from grace, Galatians 5, 4, and that you can, in fact, Lose the very characteristic of incorruption that once you had. Second Peter 2, verses 20 to 22. Maybe that church at Sardis in Revelation 3, verses 1 to 5, puts the icing on that thought. On that occasion, we find a congregation who, it says, they were alive, the name at least, but they were dead. And the Lord admonished them so much so that He said, I will blot out your name out of the book of life. Name being blotted out would imply that they again had become lost, though once they were saved. Now you and I then take to heart the thought of living faithfully until death and striving to recognize only then is that promise of eternal life 
provided to you and to me. Perhaps finally, that last observation. One of the things that God challenged and condemned these people of Jerusalem for was because they were so quick to hear, but they didn't implement what Ezekiel said. They were guilty of hearing, but not doing. That sounds, again, much like so many of those teachings of the New Testament, doesn't it? Where the apostles, including both Peter and Paul, reminded them of that day, and you and me as well, how needful it is to be busy putting into action that which the Lord has commanded. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 7 in particular that those who hear but do not do are like those that build on the weak foundation of the sand? And the winds come and the other kinds of forces and the house falls because it's founded on something so weak. No wonder all of that brings us to the next chapter. The notion of that foundation and what it leads us to The one word that seems to leap off the page to us relative to chapter 34 is the word shepherds. You may notice that the title given to the lesson was the flock of God. And so in chapter 33, it has been the watchman. In chapter 34, it will be the shepherds. As you and I give thought to the shepherds of this chapter, it is truly a monumental and colossal unfolding of the great work of God for that era, and of course it points directly to the New Testament era as well. It does not begin well. Chapter 34, beginning in verse 1, all I'll need to do is read a verse or two and the thought will be plain. Verse 2 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You immediately observe, probably along with me, that he isn't talking about those literal gentlemen that were out in the fields taking care of sheep. He's talking about those leaders of Israel who had the opportunity and the lovely privilege of leading, guiding, teaching, instructing, setting before the Israelite nation the character of God's lovely leadership. They were the shepherds that here God condemned. Verse 3, ye eat the fat and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye, have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken. Neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. And they were scattered, because there was, is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. The leaders of Israel. We've often encountered them in the Kings and the Chronicles and some of the other Old Testament writings those particular individuals who occupied positions of authority and leadership who, due to the association with God, should have led the people with such care and such earnestness. And yet God says, you took care of your needs and you ignored my flock. You took care and fed your belly and you put clothes on your back, but you ignored my sick, my weak, my scattered. God says, woe be to the shepherds. These individuals that ought to have taken their role of leadership far more critically and far more carefully. Later, something else in the prophets will be stated relative to these shepherds, but maybe Ezekiel 34 is the high water mark 
of God's statement of woe upon them for what they had failed to do. You'll notice as the chapter continues, verse 6 says, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Think back to the days of Joshua for a moment. I realize that were centuries earlier than Ezekiel. But, he, but in the days of Joshua, the people of Israel remained faithful. And one of the reasons why was the stalwart, uncompromising, unbending character of Joshua. Though the people already were beginning in their heart to seek after idols, Joshua sternly kept them in line. Since the days of Joshua, there had been no leader like that. Oh, they had had David... But he too had his own weaknesses. And they had had Solomon, but he had far many. They lacked for a gentleman who was wholly given to the ways of God and would unbendingly follow it. God says to these shepherds, you've compromised. You've fed yourself and taken care of your needs, but you've ignored your responsibility. You've neglected your duty, and for that, you're going to be punished. Woe be to the shepherds. As you can well tell on the slide, I've tried to highlight with you some of the features of what God holds in store for the punishment upon them. In verse number 7, Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Doesn't it always seem as if that's the remedy for all problems? Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. There was no shepherd. I thought that picture would perhaps embed well in her mind the very thought. Sheep without a shepherd. God's people, you see, were trying to float along on their own. And sad to say, the leaders that there ought to have been were derelict in their duties. They had so often failed to use the very things of God. We even remember there was a time somewhat prior to this when... The book of God was found in the temple and they didn't even recognize what it was. Surely the leaders had failed time and time and time again. As that leadership brings us back here to chapter number 34, verse 10 is God's summary. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. God was going to provide the solution, the remedy, the answer for this issue, and these shepherds were going to be removed from their leadership duties. It may well be, as the chapter proceeds, returning to that previous slide that we had noted, you'll appreciate that the chapter over the last half then makes these statements. Note with me verse number 17. But as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but ye must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures? God asked these shepherds, You have taken the best for yourselves and left my people with nothing. Talk about selfish leaders. Israel had it. And they were going to pay a very steep price for their selfishness. Perhaps finally you'll notice verse 19, And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trod with your feet, 
and they drink that which ye fouled with your feet. The leaders of Israel, they filled their pockets and they perhaps became wealthy and they in fact admonished themselves, but they left the people to in fact drink up the foul things left and to eat the fouled meat that was left. God says, I've had all of that I'm going to take. Isn't it sad then when there are those today in leadership positions in the church of our Lord who again advantage themselves of God's people? They steal in one way from another from the things of God. They'll have to answer for that someday. And you'll notice in beginning in verse number 20, we have an extremely rich passage. It says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle. Because ye have thrust with side and with shoulder, and pushed till the disease with your horns, till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey, and I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. Doesn't that make you excited to hear those words? Keep in mind, now the literal man David had been dead by this time for roughly 400 years. God isn't talking about the gentleman we know of as King David. He did speak, though, of one shepherd, didn't he? He said again, I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. A clear reference to, of course, that great shepherd of the sheep, and we know him well. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, John 10 verse 11. Jesus said, I will feed my sheep and I'll follow them and wherever I shall go, they shall follow with me. This is one of the clearest passages in all of Ezekiel pointing the way to the coming of the Messiah. Though it would be roughly a half millennium later before Jesus would come here, God says, I will set up one shepherd and he shall feed them and he shall lead them. And this one shepherd is, of course, the great Jesus, the Son of God. He came and he himself admitted, confessing more than once, I am the good shepherd. As he's made that statement, he said the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I thought those pictures might remind us well of how good our shepherd is. He does watch for his flock. He watches for his sheep. He's so tenderly concerned about one and all he is the door of the sheepfold, John 10, verses 1 to 3. As those descriptions are given to you and to me, how sweet it is to think about the blessing you and I now have, the Messiah, the shepherd has come. The good shepherd, of course, allows us to think about how he does watch over his sheep. That bottom one is a very quotation, if you can read it, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Doesn't in a way all that remind us of the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a comforting psalm. It is a psalm that lifts us to the very height of God's blessings toward us, but it's a psalm reminding us of the fact that the Lord is our good shepherd. 
as you complete that chapter with me, again, the last two verses are the ones that Brother John read for us earlier. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people. Saith the Lord God, and ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. David reiterated that in the 100th Psalm, verses 3 and 4. Paul highlighted it as well in the Corinthian letters. How sweet it is to be simply called a sheep in the pasture of God. Does that describe you tonight? Are you a sheep in the pasture of God? One last thought, and then the lesson will have drawn to its conclusion. It is the 35th chapter that comes before us now. We've looked at this chapter 34, that which is the shepherds, chapter 33, the watchman. Chapter 35 is a rather brief chapter, but you'll notice the singular focus is a mountain. Mount Seir, S-E-I-R. It is a mount that's rather familiar from our study of the Old Testament. A mount that occupies a rather singular position of rebellion against God, and it is that aspect that will take center stage in this 35th chapter of the book. It might be well to highlight that here's a picture, a mount. And if you're able to read that, it will show you that there is Mount Seir. If you notice down at the very bottom, the word Edom, E-D-O-M, and just to the left of that word is the word Mount Seir written in a virtually a vertical fashion. It was a well-known mountain range in the ancient era. Obviously, they still exist, but the Old Testament seems to focus so much interest in them. You'll notice they serve to divide that land on the right, from your perspective, which was Edom, from these, man, these particular areas on the left, which were primarily the, the wilderness area. Furthermore, it was a particular mountainous region that was extremely difficult terrain. In fact, a relief map of that area of the world shows you that it is a precipitous cliff-like structure. So much so that there were certain peoples who lived in those mountains and who built cities like that one. This city of ancient Petra was carved into the very precipitous rock walls of that era. Needless to say, they were often very safe because it was very difficult for any enemy to arrive to, to defeat them because they were protected by the rocks and the crevices and the canyons that guarded their way. Petra, that city that I just mentioned, the one you see pictured and portrayed there as archaeologists have discovered it. May I say to you that that particular area of Edom is also known to you and me as the very descendants of Esau. The Edomites, that's where they lived. The very people who had so often rebelled against God. So often, in fact, they had turned their back upon the children of Israel. They had tried to make the Israelites difficult. The little one-chapter Old Testament book of Obadiah, in fact, is an almost singular description of how God said, I'm going to destroy you because you have had such vengeance, such hatred, such animosity toward my people. And God did exactly what He said He would. The Edomites were destroyed. It may be in light of those things that as we return to our final set of ideas taken from Ezekiel chapter 35, you'll notice that God's judgment was to rain down thorough and complete upon the Edomites, those that lived in Mount Seir, and this reference to Mount Seir apparently was a description of that 
Edomite nation, the one that had so often been a thorn in the side of the children of Israel. And oddly enough, they would be a thorn in it even as it was destroyed. They, in fact, assisted the Babylonians in destroying the city of Jerusalem. And God said again, I will not tolerate that. That failure to tolerate it leads us to those bottom lessons. It can safely be said that there is certain doom for all who rebel and oppose God. That was true in Genesis, it's true in Revelation, and it's true in all books in between. It shall be that way at the day of judgment. How did, it, how did Paul make that point so clear in 2 Thessalonians 1? To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Notice, they didn't obey. They rebelled against God, and God says they'll be punished with everlasting destruction. Maybe one other lesson in the final one. I think it's very intriguing, the last five verses of Ezekiel 35, where God uses a description, a phraseology that sounds very similar to what you and I may have heard our parents or grandparents say at one time or another. What goes around comes around. Edom, this is what you've done to the children of Israel, and guess what? That same thing is now going to be done to you. Interesting, isn't it? Doesn't it sound a lot like the famous words of Ecclesiastes 11.1? Cast thy bread upon the waters, and it shall return unto thee not many days hence. The principle is so very clear, isn't it? And the children of Edom, the Edomites, those that rebelled against God, were soon going to experience the sore and regretful end of that rebellion. It is with that in mind that our lesson tonight seems to rush to its conclusion. And it does so, again, with perhaps these concluding words. The thrill of the book of Ezekiel continues to be with us. A book that was so very timely in that day, in that era, and in fact a book filled with lessons, the principles of which still mean so much to you and to me. We've seen tonight a reference to Jesus. 500 years or more before the actual time of His birth, and yet one shepherd was going to come. That shepherd has now been here, and the church is his flock. Are you a member of his pasture? Are you a sheep in his pasture? If you are, then may you continue faithfully all throughout life being simply a sheep, never being a goat, as our youngsters sometimes sing. And as they, of course, desire to simply be a sheep in the pasture of God, even you and I who are older still want nothing more and nothing less to be a sheep in the pasture of our Heavenly Father. For in fact, in that pasture, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. There's plenty to eat. He says in John 4, 14, I am the everlasting water, so there's plenty to drink. And He's the door that lets us in and out to pasture. There is no want that is not satisfied. But tonight, if you're not a member of that pasture, you don't have the bread of life, you don't have the water that quenches eternal thirst, and you do not have the entrance of door into the blessedness of eternity. It's available, but to this point you have rejected it. Why? Why not come to the Master tonight? The plan of salvation demands that you believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24. That you repent of your sins, to quote Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. That you furthermore, in fact, confess His name as the beloved and only begotten Son of God, 
the demand stated before us in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, and then to be humbly and submissively immersed, baptized in water for the remission of sin, Acts 2, 38, Mark 16, 16. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, please let it be tonight. Jesus is beseeching you. He's calling. You need to answer. If you have become a member of the body of Christ, but you haven't been faithful and true to that calling, you have in fact, perhaps like those shepherds, you've begun to be selfishly react towards yourself. Why not make that change and put Jesus back in His right position as the master of your life? And if we could be of help to you in that way tonight, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. If either of these things might be the need of your heart, don't delay, but why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?